Well, good morning. It's good to see you on this snowy, rainy day, and it, it is a mess out there, but we're glad that you braved the elements and, and made it, and we're so glad that those of you that are joining us online are able to connect. Uh, as you know, uh, we have been in a new series the last uh, couple of weeks. We're going to be continuing it today as well as into next week. Uh, this morning, I'm kind of wrapping up the mission part of the message, uh, and it will tie into our vision as a church, and Eric will be speaking on that next week. By way of introduction, by the way, for those of you that are new, I'm Paul. I'm one of the elders here at New Life, and uh, it's been uh, a wonderful journey and God has got us on a path that is really exciting. And this morning, I get to talk a lot about it. A um, couple um, of decades ago, uh, there was actually a song that came out that I used to love to listen to. And it, it was really a prayer. And it's related to our sermon series, related to uh, the message this morning. I don't know if, if you guys remember the title, but it was called One Pure and Holy Passion. Anybody recognize the title? Maybe you'll recognize some of the, the lyrics. The, the refrain goes, and I'm not going to sing it for you, sorry, but give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one glorious ambition for my life to know and follow hard after you. This is a beautiful, poetic way of describing um, our desire to know him and to make him known. And really, that's kind of what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, uh, to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength, and to love our neighbor even as he has loved us, and as we love ourselves, and even as we would want to be loved. But fleshing out the great commandment, as important as that is, is only part of our mission. Our magnificent obsession is to love God, love people, and make disciples. So this morning, we are going to be looking at yet another uh, command of Christ, one that links our mission to our vision. Um, and to kind of set the stage for that, I'd like to read the first paragraph from our mission statement, or excuse me, our vision statement. You might remember it. We see a church filled with disciple-making disciples, a people who passionately pursue Christ, who share the gospel with those who do not know him, who cultivate relationships to point others to Jesus Christ. Making disciples is at the core of who we are. It runs through our veins and by God's grace and power, the world can't help but see him in us. So let's commit this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for not only saving us, but calling us into your service. And, and this morning, as we, we look at a very familiar passage of scripture, Lord, I pray that you would keep us attentive. 
that we would look to hear things perhaps that we've not heard before, to have things reinforced in our mind, in, in our hearts, so that we might live it. We don't want to just be hearers of your word. We want to be doers of it. We want you to be pleased with us. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be our teacher and our guide this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn over to Matthew chapter uh, 28. Going to be looking at verses uh, 16 through 20. Uh, If you don't have a Bible handy, it's going to be up on the screen. You'll be able to see it. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." Now, some scholars believe that this meeting that Jesus is having with those that are gathered at this mountain in Galilee may, in fact, be the same meeting that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians when he talks about how Jesus appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Uh, The fact that some doubted uh, seems to support that because by this time, the disciples had already seen Jesus. They had already believed in him. But apparently there were some who were present who doubted. Now this passage, as you know, is uh, referred to as the Great Commission. And of course, when you think about a commission, we think about you know, receiving orders or instructions or a command, a task, a job, something that we are assigned to do. And... This isn't the only place, though, in Scripture where we read it. Now, albeit it will come in different forms, but it shows up in Mark's writings, it shows up in Luke's writings, both his gospel as well as in the book of Acts. But Jesus' words are very clear, and this is perhaps the clearest of all the, the references in Scripture, is that every Christ follower or disciple of Jesus, is called to make disciples. There is not a single exception to that, and I hope you'll see that as we move along. You see, obedience to the Great Commission really goes hand in hand with obedience to the Great Commandment. I mean, they're both commands, but as we talked about before, to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself is really fleshed out here in the great commandment. In obeying, excuse me, the great commission, in obeying the great commission, we're demonstrating our love for God and our love for our neighbor. Love God, love people, make disciples that you see here. That's not just a tagline. That's our mission. 
That's our magnificent obsession. So before we go any further, I think it, it's important to, to ask the question and then try to answer it. What is a disciple? I mean, that's really not a word we use much these days. I mean, if anything, when we hear the word disciple, a lot of times we think about somebody who's a part of a cult. Well, the, the word basically means follower. And to be a disciple of Jesus means we follow him and learn from him. A disciple is a student, a protege, an apprentice, or if you're a Star Wars fan, a Padawan. But you get the picture. We follow Jesus. We learn from him. And we learn not just from his teaching, but his manner of life. I love the simple definition of a disciple from the Disciple Maker's Handbook. A disciple is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is one who possesses Christ's character and is pursuing his priorities in life. A disciple of Jesus, you might say, is a little Christ, a mini Jesus. In fact, the word Christian means Christ-like. That's why I think I love what C.S. Lewis uh, said, the church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. And if they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. Tim Keller said this about discipleship. He said, discipleship is not an option. Jesus says that if anyone would come after me, he must follow me. So if we desire to be in relationship with him, if we desire to follow Jesus, we, we, we have to obey him. We have to walk in his footsteps. We have to learn from him and do as he did. Disciple-making, according to Robbie Gallaty and Replicate Ministries, is intentionally equipping believers with the Word of God through accountable relationships empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to replicate faithful followers of Christ. There it is in a nutshell, what it means to be a disciple and what discipleship or disciple-making is all about. Now, before we unpack verses 18 through 20, I want us to focus on a verse that we don't often talk about, and that's verse 16. I have been mulling this verse over in my mind all week, and, um, and I, I've got some takeaways. I'm going to share them with you. Uh, this is extra credit, um, so uh, bear with me here. Verse 16 now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. Now, 
you might not know it just from looking at that verse, but Jesus had said on multiple occasions that after he is raised, he would go to Galilee. And he told his disciples to meet him there. In fact, earlier in this chapter, uh, through the, the women who had uh, had the uh, appearance of Jesus after his resurrection, Jesus told them to go back to his brethren and tell them to go to Galilee, to the mountain where they will see him. And so as I read that verse this, this past week, even into the week before, I just kept thinking, why? Why did Jesus ask them to go to Galilee to see him? I mean, Jesus died and he rose from the dead in Jerusalem. The disciples were in Jerusalem. The disciples had already seen Jesus. So why Galilee? Galilee was 90 miles away from Jerusalem. And they didn't have planes, trains, and automobiles back then. That was a 90-mile trek, one way, and then another 90 miles back. It seems like an odd request. I mean, Jesus could be anywhere. He, he, he appeared, popped in the middle of the room, locked doors, you know. He can, he can be anywhere at any time, but he makes his disciples walk 90 miles to Galilee to see him. Later, Jesus tells them, stay in Jerusalem. So we know they had to go back to Jerusalem, another 90-mile hike, and then eventually Jesus led them out to Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, where he then ascended to the Father. So as I was thinking about it, I, I just thought, this really doesn't make any sense. Or does it? I started thinking about what what I might be thinking and feeling if I was one of the disciples and what Jesus might be after. And I, I don't know from this verse, but, but I have to believe that when you love Jesus, you go where he tells you to go. You do what he tells you to do. You go, especially if you know he's gonna be there. One of the, the things that, you know, I've noticed over the years is, you know, people will follow music groups all over the world to see them perform. They will have seen them a bazillion times, but yet they're going to go follow them. They're going to go see them somewhere else. So this is not that unusual, especially with the love that they have for their Savior, especially in light of the fact that he was once dead, but now he's alive. I wouldn't be able to get enough of Jesus. Now, here are a few takeaways that, that I have. First is, disciples obey even when it doesn't make sense. There are times when we choose to do the right thing, the thing that God wants us to do, even though we don't fully understand it, even though we don't comprehend it, even though we're asking why, 
we exercise faith in our obedience. It it may challenge our sensibilities. It may be difficult to do, but obedience is not optional. Jesus told his disciples to go to Galilee, and they went. And when we obey, we prove our love for, for Christ and that we trust him. Second takeaway is Jesus reveals himself and his teaching to us when we choose to obey. You know, Jesus said something in the book of John is that if anyone is willing to do, if anyone is willing to do his will, then he shall know of the teaching. You notice how Jesus put the emphasis on obedience first? See, a lot of times we want to know what it is that God wants us to do so then we can decide whether or not we will do it. Jesus is not obligated to share with us information, his will, if we're not prepared to obey. Now, he promised that he would meet them there. And if they wanted to see him again, that's where they would have to go. My third takeaway was, was that obedience puts us not only in a position to hear from God, but also to be used by God. I mean, think about it. I mean, I know it's hypothetical, but if they had not gone to Galilee, they never would have heard Jesus say the amazing things that he says here in Matthew and and perhaps as recorded elsewhere in the Gospels. They might never have heard Jesus say all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. They may not have heard him say, and behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. These are huge truths that he revealed to them in Galilee. And what I think is really Interesting is as, as difficult as that 90 mile trek would have been, Jesus is about to tell them they're going to go even further because he is going to send them to all the nations of the earth. Could it have been a test? I don't know. I just know that if you love Jesus, you obey. So, how far? Are you willing to go to know his will and to experience his power in your life? I don't mean, you know, going across the street, although that was kind of a hike. If you parked at the post office, you had to trudge through the snow just to come here to service, okay? Some of us, God will call to go to the mission field overseas, But I have no doubt that God is calling all of us to be missionaries right where we live, to go to our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our family members. It's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. If we want to hear from God, we have to be faithful in the little things. And this really was a little thing for them to go 90 miles to Galilee but it put them in a position to hear even greater truths and to be used of God as his witnesses in the world. Well, the disciples obeyed. They went. 
And they were able to hear Jesus say all those things, especially verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, we can't blow past that. The Greek word for authority there is exousia. And it means the lawful, rightful, and unimpeded power to act. Now, just think for a moment what Jesus is saying. He has the lawful, rightful, unimpeded power to act in heaven and on earth. He has all authority. There isn't a single microbe or molecule outside of his power and authority, outside of his governance. And Matthew, in his gospel, depicts the authority of Jesus in in a way that the other gospels do not. He displays and depicts Jesus's authority over sickness and disease. He displays his authority in his teaching and over death and over Satan and his demons. And he also portrays Jesus's authority in his forgiveness of sin. And here Jesus tells them that all power, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, since we are called to make disciples... This is an encouraging word because knowing that Jesus has all authority means I don't have to fear. I don't have to worry. God is in control. I don't need permission from kings and presidents or big tech to share the gospel, to preach the gospel. My authority comes from Christ Himself, your authority to proclaim the gospel comes from Jesus. And, and if that's the case, I mean, that's a stamp of approval. That is, I mean, imagine going to another country and, and having the authority of the president backing you for whatever it is that he calls you to do. Our authority is much greater than that. We don't have to fear because he has authority over Satan and all the powers of darkness. If God is for us, who can be against us? We don't have to worry. He is there. He is our strong tower, our refuge, our mighty fortress. He will go before us and he will be our rear guard. And most importantly, he has all power and authority, meaning he can keep us. He will keep us in the center of his will. His grace not only saves us, it sustains us, it keeps us. And one day it will bring us home to him. But of course, having all authority is also a warning. It's a warning for those who will not believe the gospel first and foremost. You see, God has the authority to judge sinners. He has the authority to cast souls into hell. He has the authority to judge his church. In fact, Scripture tells us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 
Peter says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It's not a judgment of salvation. It's a judgment of our works. And we need to be faithful to what God has called us to do. And so on the basis of his sovereign power in authority, he says in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is a pivotal couple of verses for the church. It is foundational. Everything the church does, from fellowship to worship to ministry and everything else in between is predicated on this. It must all align from our children's ministry to our student ministry to our adult ministries. It must all align with the command to make disciples. That's our mission. That is what we have been called to do. That's our magnificent obsession. If we, if we turn away from that, and even with great programs, wonderful programs and everything else, we're just tickling ears. We need to be about making disciples. And unfortunately, even as I'm speaking on this topic this morning, we've heard it so many times, we've grown numb to it. We can quote the verse. But God doesn't care if you can quote it. Are you doing it? No matter how many times we hear it, we need to hear it over and over and over and over and over again. And when you're sick of hearing it, then you're just starting to learn it. The word nations in our text is the Greek word ethnos, meaning people groups. And you probably surmise it's where the word ethnicity or ethnic comes from. So when Jesus says you're to go to all nations, he isn't so much saying, hey, you're to go to the United States, to Great Britain, to Russia, um, countries. He's talking about people groups who reside in these countries, but they're ethnic groups, people groups. And we're to go to all of them. That's a lot. This is a big world. That's why Wycliffe and other agencies are working so tirelessly to translate the Bible in languages of people um, who we don't even know exist, but they're out there. That's why missionaries need to go and bring the gospel to people who have never heard. Yes, we take the gospel to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors, our coworkers, but we must also take the gospel to the world. The mission field is both here in our backyard and across vast oceans. This past week I read, um, I read something that I thought was, was interesting. Um, uh, a one-legged school teacher from uh, Scotland came to Hudson Taylor, who was uh, a, a famous missionary, to offer himself for service in China. With only one leg, 
why do you think of going as a missionary? Asked Taylor. I do not see those with two legs going, replied George Scott. He was accepted, and he went. Going to another people group in another country, however, is not reserved for some type of elite Christian. Sometimes we, we, we think, oh, you, you, you know, you got to be a super saint to do that. I don't think I, I could do that. No, God uses everyday ordinary people who are yielded to him. All it takes is somebody who takes the Great Commission seriously, and God will use them. And before, though, we can talk about going over there, we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing over here? See, I went to Bible college where there were an awful lot of people who talked about God called me to China. God called me to, to Africa or some other place to preach the gospel. I have, a really, I have a real heart for the Afghanis and this, that, and the other thing. And you know, and I, and, and I loved it. I loved hearing that. But the longer I got to know these people over a period of three years, what you found out is that they weren't sharing the gospel right where they live. They weren't sharing it with family members. They weren't taking it across the street to their neighbor. They weren't sharing it with, with friends who needed to hear See, it's a, it's a whole heck of a lot easier to say we love people out there than it is to say we love people in here. See, th- those people out there, those people overseas, I can create a caricature of them. I can kind of picture them all just kind of like, yes, give me the word, right? But the people here who we know, you know, they're stiff-arming us, and it's not as easy. Well, you know what? They'll stiff-arm you over there, too. But, if we're obedient, because all authority belongs to him and because he is sovereign over the hearts and the minds of men and women, you will, if you are faithful, find people who will be receptive to the gospel and they will believe and they will be saved and they will become a disciple of Christ. I'm getting excited now. The only, well, let me back up just a little bit here. Are you sure you're a disciple of Christ? Are you sure? Because the proof is in the pudding. A disciple is not someone who has a lot of Bible knowledge, it's not a churchgoer. It's not a person who's religious. It's a person who truly loves God, loves people, and is on mission with him to make disciples. Of course, there's so much more to the Christian life, but that's it in a nutshell. Our only imperative, even in this text, is to make disciples. That's the command that we are given here. Now, there are three participles in this text. You probably heard me talking about it before. And these participles help us understand how we are to make disciples, two of which apply to everyone, one of which 
appears to be the responsibility of appointed church leaders. So let's, let's look at them briefly. First of all, we make disciples by going. Go and make disciples. Now, the command is not go. The command is make disciples, but it assumes that we will be going, whether it's overseas, to our next-door neighbor, to the guy in the cubicle next to us. We have to be on the move. We have to go where people are. We have no right to expect people to come to us. And you know what? They won't. Take a look around. Look at the empty chairs. The lost are not beating down our door saying, hey, can I come in? I I, want to be a part of this. They're just not going to do it. They don't know to do it. They don't know what they're missing. We have to tell them. We can't begin making disciples unless we are intentional about going. Second participle is baptizing. You know, Christianity is not a secret society. There are no undercover saints. Baptism is an important ordinance in the Christian faith. It is a public declaration of our love for and our allegiance to Christ. It is an outward sign of an inward transformation, and it's one of the very first steps of obedience as a Christian. But it is also the initiating rite into the Christian church, into the local church. And because uh, baptism, because of this, uh, baptism uh, most often, as much as possible, should be administered to by an official church representative. And, And we see in Scripture this pattern. Because in Scripture, the only ones that we see baptizing others are are the apostles, the apostles' uh, emissaries or delegates, elders and deacons. Um, I like what Wayne Grudem said in his systematic theology. He said this, If baptism is the sign of entering the fellowship of the visible church, then it seems appropriate that some officially designating designated representative or representatives of the church be selected to administer it. Bobby Jameson, in his book, Understanding Baptism, broadens it out even more. He says this, that baptism is an exercise of the keys of the kingdom. It is a church's official affirmation of someone's claim to follow Christ. In baptism, the church speaks for Jesus, so the baptizer needs to speak for the church. So I don't know if you followed all of that, but basically, baptism in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, when you were baptized, it was not only a personal, private statement of faith in Christ, but it was also a statement that says that I am a bona fide believer in Jesus. I am a, a re, the real deal. I believe in Jesus, and I want to be a part of the fellowship. I want to be a part of this local church. 
Now, of course, the elders are charged to guard the church, to protect the flock, and so they need to oversee and make sure that they're just not letting any Tom, Dick, or Gary come in off the street and become a member of the church. And so they bear the responsibility of making sure that this profession of faith is credible, that this person truly belongs to Christ and is therefore welcome in the body. One last point about baptism here, and I know we could preach a whole sermon on it, but ideally, too, baptism ought to be performed before the entire congregation, or at least as many of them as possible, to which you would say, well, why? You know? Well, because you're becoming a part of the body of Christ, I mean, we are members of one another. Uh, That's a most obvious reason. Another reason, and there are several, but another one is what an encouragement it is to the body to see other believers taking a step of faith in, in obedience and being baptized. What joy that brings to the entire body. And for those of you um, who have been baptized and you have had the crowd around you, whether it's at Eric's house, you know, during the summer or, or in a baptismal tub on a Sunday morning, whatever, you know it is a special moment. Third, third participle to cover, and that is teaching. Jesus says we are to teach them. But not just teach them. We are to teach them to obey all of Jesus' commands. Now this assumes that we know God's word well enough to teach it to others. But we do not merely impart information. We are to teach to obey. And if we're going to do that, the most obvious thing is we have to obey God's word ourselves. We can't have that, you know, do as I say, not as I do attitude. We teach by our life. People need to see us obeying the very scriptures that we challenge other people to obey. But teaching them to obey also involves reproof correction, and training in righteousness. We don't simply win people to Christ, get them wet, expose them to some truth, and then send them on their way. We are to foster obedience. The church is settled for far too long to just get warm bodies to come in and take up a seat, put money in the offering plate, show up on Sunday so we can look like we're the cool hip church. Things are happening. We got lots of people. It, that, that's not the point. We are, as a church, you want to know what a healthy church is? Healthy church is when God's people gather and they love him with all their heart, all their mind, all their soul, all their strength. They love their neighbor as their self and they're on mission with God to make disciples. That's a healthy church. And I think, and I'm just going to go out on a limb here, I, th- I, think, I think we're healthy. And I think we're getting healthier. And I can't wait to see what God is going to do this year as he releases us to preach the gospel, 
to lead people to Christ. Wouldn't it be neat to see in six months, end of the year, maybe sooner, these seats filled up, not just with those people who we already know, who are already a part of new life, but new faces. And not just people who have come from another church, but people who didn't know Jesus, but because of us, they came to know Jesus, and that's why they're here. That, that's cool, thinking about that. So the last thing this morning that I want to, for us to see is, it's found there in, in verse 20. Jesus said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What a remarkable promise. But Jesus had to leave this world for this promise to become a reality. Jesus had to ascend to the Father in order for the Holy Spirit to come. And now that the Holy Spirit is here, Jesus can now be with all of his children all the time, everywhere, and whenever they exist. This promise was true for the early disciples. It was true for those living in the Middle Ages. It's true for us today, and it will be true for believers until the day Jesus comes back. G. Campbell Morgan, Dr. Morgan, said early in his Christian life, he used to visit several ladies once a week to read the Bible to them. When he came to the end of Matthew's gospel, Morgan read, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He added, isn't that a wonderful promise? To which one of the ladies quickly responded, young man, that is not a promise. It's a fact. It is a fact. Jesus is with us, and he promises to never leave us or forsake us. He is with us when we go into the mission field, wherever that mission field is, and he is faithful to his promises to us, and he will honor our obedience to fulfill the Great Commission. That last phrase there, to the end of the age, tells us he has a plan. He has a purpose. He is moving history to an appointed end. And one day he will return for us. We don't know when that will be. Could be today. Could be tomorrow. Could be next year, 100 years. We don't know. But what we do know is that we are to have one pure and holy passion. We are to have one glorious ambition to know him and to make him known. If we truly love God, love people, if we believe that what Jesus says here in Matthew 28 applies to us, then we will make disciples. This is our imperative 
This is our mission. And this is our magnificent obsession. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for all your grace. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you sent, who came, gave up his life so that we might be forgiven, that we might have eternal life, and that we might be on mission with you in this life. Lord, we pray that you would ruin us for anything less than your glory. Lord, use us, not just this year and the years to come, but Lord, this month, this week, to share the good news of the gospel with others, that they might know you and love you as we know you and love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.